Let's be in prayer together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do not, do not, do not be afraid, little flock. There's about a million ways we could unpack that one little sentence this morning. The teachings of Jesus, the instructions, the invitation, the proclamation of God's kingdom comes down in many ways, and some of the ways are prescriptions. Thou shalt live this way. Thou shalt do these things. The prescribed way of living in the world. And many people, many people look through the Bible and scan out only those prescriptions. And they cut and they paste them into a list. And they say, as long as I check these off, God will be pleased with me, and then I don't have to talk to God so often. Just tell me the recipe. Tell me the rule book. Give me life's instructions. Then they get busy doing that, and they forget that they should talk to the Lord once in a while. Jesus not only gave prescriptions. In fact, he gave very few of those. But he also gave proscriptions. He set the pasture land, if you will, built the boundary fence. You can do whatever you want as God's little lambs, so long as you don't go beyond these boundaries. Those are proscriptions. And we have a proscription here from Jesus this morning. Do not be anxious. This is perhaps one of the most challenging teachings of Jesus for Christians in our generation. Because you are being assaulted every single day by people who are trying to make you afraid. And the reason that they are getting away with it is because there is something inside of every one of us, that ancient part of our brain from the flight and fight region of our brain, which is wired to be afraid. I remember camping with my son one time, and he was in high school by this point, and we were both veterans at it, and we were playing catch with a ball of tape that we had, we were bored, and we were just, you know, it set up camp, and we were just playing catch, and suddenly there was the snap of a twig, which sounded significant in a pile of brambles and cactus near where he was standing and he turned and he looked and I said something's in there and it we could hear it moving down through the dried leaves and the twigs and it sounded huge and I'm thinking to myself now what lives in this area that could be any threat to us and so I said well come on over and stand over here and about 15 seconds later a a tiny brown sparrow emerged from the bottom (laughs) of this thicket and flew off. We can enlarge the snap of a twig to become a huge slobbering beast ready to devour us. We can make an entire mountain range out of a tiny molehill. We're wired to be afraid from our ancient days as a species. Because if you stop and you stand and you ponder for a minute when the saber-toothed tiger comes out of the bush instead of the sparrow, 
you're toast. And then you don't get to contribute to the gene pool anymore, and your descendants aren't among us today. There's a moment where you've just got to take off and go. And the advertisers and the performers and the movie makers and the singers and the people who sell newspapers and the people who sell the news feed on television, they are all making a fortune, making us afraid. Afraid of everything. My lands, I turn on TV during the witching hour in the, in the evening and every other commercial now is for some kind of a drug to cure something that I didn't even know that I had or that I, that I knew that I could get and they just keep piling up on top. And then halfway through the, the commercial, the disclaimers start. You can't live without this drug any longer or your life will be in the skids. But if you take the drug, one of the side effects could be death. Um, so if that occurs, call a doctor right away. Man alive. I'm tired of it, aren't you? I'm tired of the fear. I'm tired of cowering. I'm tired of crouching. I'm tired of being afraid. I want to hear Jesus say loud and clear with no equivocation and no trap door to get out of it, do not be afraid, little flock. Do not be afraid. And I want to hear him say it so that we get it through our hearts and our minds and our skulls that living in fear is actually a condition of sin. It's sin. It's why Jesus said, occasions for sin are bound to occur, but woe unto those by whom it comes. It would be better for the perpetrators of fear in our generation to have a millstone put around their neck and have them tossed into the ocean than to continue to live like this, for we can't even call it living. Do not be afraid, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. That is good news, my friends. We have made in our baptism a wholehearted acceptance of a new kingdom. And it's breaking in on the world even as we are sitting and breathing today. It has been coming and evolving and moving and influencing our world for 2,000 years now. And while the world can't always see it, and while the disciples of Jesus can't always see it, the faithfulness of God continues on. And the good news is that God is ever ready, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, to give us the kingdom of God, if we will only receive it. Set down our fears, put aside our anxieties, and take up the life of love that is offered to us. These words of Jesus come right on the heels of him saying, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. It's Luke's version of the same teaching in Matthew 6. Merimnate, the Greek word, to be anxious. It can, it can mean to have strong feelings. It can mean to sit and worry and you know, pick up your worry beads and sit in the chair all night and have your mind spinning and so you can't go to sleep. But it also can mean putting into practice a certain way of living 
that grows out of the anxiety that we will not have this or that we will have that. It means ordering our life in such a way so that anxiety is the thing that's driving us down the road every day. And Jesus says, enough of it. Do not order your life according to the fears that you see around you or even that are welling up within you, but give way to the peace of God that passes all understanding and watch how life can go. Don't be anxious. Let it go and take up the kingdom of God, a kingdom of love and of reconciliation, of acceptance and of welcome. I was sharing with somebody just before worship that while Judy and I were in Scotland, we visited this, the town of Glencoe. It's, it's in the middle part of Scotland. And it's famous or infamous for something that took place many years ago. The town of Glencoe was full of McDonald's. And there was a, uh, a servant of, the, of King, of King James, um, who, who didn't like the McDonald's very much. And so he dispatched the uh, Campbells, who were kind of the police chiefs, to, as he said, put to the sword anyone under the age of 70 in Glencoe. But they didn't just massacre them. No, first they stayed for two weeks. The men had gone off to swear allegiance to the king, but they arrived too late because of a snowstorm. And so the orders were executed. But the executioners stayed with the women and children and the elderly in that village for two full weeks and then woke up at five in the morning and carried out the orders. And those who were not killed fled into the hills during a blizzard and were killed by the winter. And to listen to the Scots tell this story, the murder isn't the offense. The murder isn't the offense. Because the Scottish people have taken to heart this radical notion that hospitality is the highest gift they can give to the world. If you stand and talk to a stranger for more than 15 minutes, they'll say, listen, do it. would you like to have a cuppa? Come on in. And, and, and it, what, to have a cuppa just means that maybe we'll have tea or maybe we'll have scones or maybe we'll just sit and visit for a while. But come warm the threshold of my door. Come and sit by my fire. Come, you're no stranger any longer. What a world we would live in if everyone could live like this. And it was the offense against the spirit and the principle of hospitality that so offended the people of Scotland after the Glencoe Massacre. Now, what offends our sensibilities as Christians? What are the principles that we have taken so to heart that it would offend us if they were broken? Are they principles that are more closely aligned with fear and greed and acquiescence and, uh, and acquisition? Or are they the things that, that put, to, put to the sword peace and reconciliation and love and generosity? Have we aligned ourselves with kingdom principles? Hmm. Jesus goes on to say, Now be dressed and ready for action and have your lamps lit be like those who are waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. He changes the metaphor, tells a different parable. Be like those who are waiting for the master to come home. 
and even if it's into the second or the third watch of the night, they are present and ready and able to serve. Be like that. He says um, that we should sell our possessions and give alms to the poor because our treasure and our heart are aligned in the same place. Now, the world, the world will often say, just change the heart, change the heart, and the treasure will follow. If you just change the heart, the treasure will follow. But Jesus didn't say it that way. He said, where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. Hmm. Sometimes we have to put into practice. Sometimes we have to make real and substantive the things that we want to have in our heart. It's a, it's a very close to Jesus saying, fake it till you make it here. <laughs> Act as if you have faith and your heart will follow you in that way. How often do we want to believe that our hearts are the things that drive our actions, but it's often the other way around. We are conditioned by the ways that we wake up in the morning and by the ways we move through the world and by the things that assault our ears and our eyes. We are conditioned to behave in certain ways. And the good news, my friends, is we can change our behaviors. We can lay up treasure in a new place. We can live by a different standard. We can order our actions so that they reflect, they reflect the priorities of God. And our hearts will come around to join them there. Anybody who's ever taken up exercise for a season knows that the hardest day is the first one. You lay there on the couch, and you get motivated, and you say, wow, that motivation is really, 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 really weighed down by gravity. I better lay down here until it passes. <laughs> and then one day has passed, and two days have passed, and three days have passed, and four days have passed. And if we're talking not about physical exercise, but spiritual exercise, we find ourselves in a loop that says, look, when the Lord appears in the sky, I will stand up and I'll be ready and I'll go and I'll meet him. And a whole lifetime will pass. And the proverb whispers in our ear, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Poverty will come upon us like a thief in the night. Hmm. The good news is, we can change our behaviors, and the behaviors can lead us to a different heart. Let me ask you a question. Between selling all our possessions and giving alms to the poor, if you had to make a choice, which would you prefer? Selling all your possessions or giving alms to the poor, if you had to prioritize that, I can tell you how I think most people would answer because almsgiving comes easy in our generation, but selling everything we possess and giving that to God's kingdom, that's a whole other agenda, isn't it? Holding nothing back, keeping, I'm not saying give up your jobs, but just 
Somebody suggested to me the other day that instead of rummage sales in the church, what we ought to have are discipleship sales. That is to say that we fill Messenger Hall with everything, every single thing that is superfluous and we do not need everything. Not just what we don't want anymore, but what we don't need to sustain us. That would be, that would be something, wouldn't it? The UMW could probably retire after that one. Oh, the things we acquire, the things we accumulate, and with all due respect to Marie Kondo, just holding it in your hand and seeing if it brings joy to you is not the standard. Looking at something and saying, is this something that God asked me to have? That's the standard. Have I been obedient in this? This is the standard. Is God directing my paths? Is God telling me what I should or shouldn't have? And by the way, having wealth is no antidote for being anxious. When we are poor and we have no options, we are worried whether we'll have something to eat the next day. But then as we acquire a little bit and we get a little bit of freedom, we start to worry instead about whether I can advance, whether I can move up the ladder, whether I can get the next job or the next promotion or whether I can have a little bit more. And for those people who have everything and then they sit at home at night and worry about who's going to come to take it from them and how to protect it and how to keep it. No, wealth itself is no antidote for being anxious. There is only one antidote for being anxious and that is to be ready, as Jesus said. For the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. To be ready. To watch faithfully and diligently. Watch with our lamps lit. In the other places in the Gospel of Luke where the disciples are told to watch, it's always coupled with an interesting behavior. Watch and pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Or whether he's on the mountain of transfiguration. Watch with me and pray. Be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man will come as unexpectedly as he appeared before Peter, James, and John on that mountain of transfiguration. The kingdom of God is breaking in upon us even now. The book of James said, Do not neglect showing hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, many have entertained angels. And we don't know whether it will be Christ himself who comes to be with us. But we do know that when we open our lives to the principles of God's kingdom, and especially to the principle of prayer, the kingdom of God will break in in ways and at times that we never expected. And you say, oh, this is the true church. This is church. And the crazy thing is, he didn't say, do not fear mega church, for it's God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. He did not say, do not fear worldwide religious denomination, for it's God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. He said, do not fear little flock. He just had a handful of people with him. When he called them to be leaders in his kingdom, they smelled like fish and sweat. They were collecting taxes for the most hated government in Israel. One of them he had to call out of a tree to come and be with him. 
He called them from the most unlikely places. And these 12 people following Jesus and aligning their lives according to the kingdom of God have changed the world so profoundly that we now measure time itself as before Jesus and after. That's the power of those who live according to kingdom principles, who align their lives according to God's word, and who pray, and who pray. My mother-in-law, God bless her, she, for the longest time, refused to go to the doctor. She was married to a doctor, but she refused to go to the doctor, even though there were clearly things that needed attention, because she never wanted to have it confirmed in her that something was wrong. Have you ever been that way? I know I should see the doctor, but I don't want to hear what she's going to tell me, so I'll just stay home today. How is that working out for us? Right? And so we weigh in our minds whether it's appropriate to hear the diagnosis or not, whether we're ready to take the full measure of it. And of course, just because a doctor tells us something we didn't want to hear doesn't mean that they hate us. It doesn't mean that they're down on us. In fact, quite the opposite. They're telling us, giving us the information so that working with us, they can help us to be whole people again. I don't do this very often, but I am your pastor, and I'm going to make a diagnosis today. We are struggling with sin in this church. And I say this not to beat anyone up or to break anyone down. I say this in the broad, glorious hope that in knowing the diagnosis, we can begin the process of being a whole people. Our watchfulness has fallen asleep. We are not ready for the kingdom yet. We are not praying as we ought to pray. And I am not speaking of devotional prayer only, but I am speaking of those times and moments when entire congregations come and pour themselves out together in prayer they gather together and they pour themselves out in prayer un unrelentingly until God answers. Now, we will meet until all hours of the morning talking about lower attendance and our finances and how to keep the buildings up and all of the things of this world that consume us. And as we do so, if we do so without prayer, we are in sin do not be anxious, he said. I don't know if we together can hear this. But the diagnosis is sin. Corporate sin. And the prescription is prayer. That powerful connection to God's Spirit, which also connects us to one another, in bonds of love and in bonds of joy. These are deep things for us to ponder.
And I don't expect us to just hear this today and be done with it. I think we need to talk about such things and we need to pray about such things. And I'll be in Africa for a week. And how wonderful it will be to come home and find that people have been of their own volition, been gathering in groups of five and 10 and 20, maybe even gathering here and taking it upon ourselves to pray in a spirit of watchfulness so that God's kingdom can break in fresh and new and make of Funko the church that God wants us to be. Do not fear, little flock. Do not fear. For it is God's pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And when he comes and when he gives it to us, well, we have been in such a state of readiness that we will know it immediately. I wonder. I wonder.